Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you uh, all so much for coming. Um, we, we're doing a conference at the same time, and my competition is Louvre Museum. And I, if it, I fully understand why people pick Louvre, for, but for those of you who didn't, I, I'm uh, very grateful. Um, thank you so much, Nikos, for the, the kind introduction and for inviting me to Abu Dhabi. I have never been here before, but it uh, has been a very, very pleasant stay um, so far. Um, so what I'm going to talk about um, today, and I'm already moved ahead, is, uh, as Nikos was saying, the work that I've done to try to understand why it is that women continue to struggle to break through the glass ceiling. And it pretty much, even though there's a lot of variation um, across countries, being from Denmark, uh, I certainly perceive Denmark as being uh, very different from the U.S. It turns out that pretty much independent of where we look, whether or not it's in the U.S. or in Europe, uh, or for that matter, in Australia, the, the female representation on boards is typically around 20%. The number of female CEOs we have is usually around 5%. And um, there's a very striking article from, the, from Australia where they said that there currently are more Andrews who are CEOs than there are females. So that just gives you a sense of the underrepresentation. Um, of course, uh, there are some variations. Um, I was trying to look up numbers uh, from the Emirates um, they're clearly uh, leading the way um, with currently having a specific goal to get representations of women on corporate boards uh, around 20%. So they're aiming to uh, get to numbers that are comparable to what we're seeing uh, for the rest of the world. But throughout my work in trying to understand how do we think about getting to that top corporate layer, what is it that causes women to sort of climb the corporate ladder uh, in different ways from what we're seeing from men. Um, I think initially I thought about it as sort of like you get to a promotion stage that's sort of a one, zero, one decision. You either get promoted or not get promoted. And it's clear that that's not really the way we should be thinking about this. Um, and I've come to see it more as a, that we really need to dig in and look at the everyday tasks that men and women are doing in order to understand what it is that costs men and women to climb the corporate ladder uh, in different ways. And I think one of the ways that at least has helped me to look at this is to say, what are the task allocations that we have in the workplace? To what extent are the tasks that people perform, what we would characterize as high promotability tasks, that is task for which your performance is going to get noticed, it's going to influence your performance evaluation and the likelihood of promotion. And to what extent is it a non-promotable task in the sense that the work needs to be done, but nobody's really go going to pay attention to how well you did that particular task. So if you want to think of examples, um, a standard example from industry is to say, how much time are you spending on revenue generating tasks versus non-revenue generating tasks? Uh, in research, 
uh, or in academia, uh, not surprisingly, you would think of the promotable task as being spending time on research and spending less time uh, on service. And indeed, when we, um, just to confirm our suspicion that doing research is a more promotable task, we conducted a survey uh, of faculty and said, suppose you have an assistant professor who has an additional 50 hours um, to spend in a semester. How should that faculty member best spend their time to secure promotion? Should they work on a research paper, present research talks at a conference? Should they serve on an undergraduate curriculum review committee uh, or serve time on faculty senate? Now, the result of this uh, survey is not going to be very surprising. People had to rank the four possible tasks, one, two, three, four. Um, what we found was that 90% of those surveyed ranked working on a research paper or attending a research conference as being the best way of spending 50 additional hours. So there's broad agreement that doing research is the promotable task. So if we say that there's broad agreement on what is the promotable task, we can then say, well, is there evidence of gendered allocations of tasks? And indeed, if you go to the literature, there is evidence that men and women spend their time differently within uh, academia, uh, the research suggests that women tend to spend uh, fewer hours in research. Uh, they tend to spend more time advising undergraduates, and they spend uh, more time on committees than their male colleagues do. Uh, similarly, if you look within uh, industry, there is also evidence that women are spending more time uh, on tasks that you might uh, characterize as not developing their skill cells sets as much as the tasks that men are spending, as the tasks that men are assigned to. And indeed, uh, there is a very nice study by DePatter et al., where they first ask men and women uh, to describe the tasks that they do. They're then sorted by whether or not they're challenging tasks, and then they subsequently give the same task to managers and ask them to allocate it to their workers and Indeed, what they find is that women more than men are getting the less challenging tasks. Um, and then we can say sort of why, why is this a concern? Why might it be a concern that we see men and women getting these different allocations of tasks? Why could it be a concern that women more than men appear to be assigned tasks that we could characterize as being non-promotable versus promotable? And one of the areas where you could imagine it being problematic is when it comes to the promotion stage. So if I'm at the promotion stage, if I have women more than men being assigned to tasks that are non-promotable, it's going to be harder to figure out how talented they truly are. So of course, there's nothing that says that all men and women should be giving the same task allocations, but we certainly before we know what their underlying skills are, should try to make sure that they are given the same task assignment so that we can assess who the best worker is and who's the best qualified worker for promotion. But if we end up assigning more non-promotable work to the female faculty or to the female worker, we're going to put a veil over her that prevents us from seeing how well she would really do on the promotable task. So. Um, well, now we're looking at this from the females' perspectives or um, 
certainly from the industry's perspective, the interest should be in figuring out who's the most talented worker. And we cannot figure that out if we saddle women with more non-promotable work uh, than we assign to men. Now, some of the reasons why we might want to give different allocations of tasks could be that there are different preferences for the kind of tasks that we want. If women more than men prefer to do non-promotable work, then they should be doing more non-promotable work. If women uh, don't have the ability to do the promotable work, then indeed they should be doing the non-promotable work. It could also be that there's discrimination that causes these differences. What I've been trying to do in my work is to look at this from the perspective of saying, are there behavioral differences that contribute to these different allocations? Because if there are behavioral differences, then there may be things that we can do about the allocation. So um, in looking at these allocations of tasks, I think it's fair to say that most of the research has been focused on saying, why is it that men more than women end up with the promotable task? So how is it that we allocate the promotable work? There's evidence that men are better at negotiating. They're more eager to negotiate. That would certainly secure them a larger share of the promotable work. Uh, I, in my work with Muriel Needley, um, have found that men are far more eager to compete uh, that they are more confident about their ability, which certainly would suggest that they should end up with more of the promotable work. Um, Sheryl Sandberg has sort of coined the competition for these promotable work as women failing to lean in. So it also suggests that there are behavioral differences that cause differential task assignments of the promotable task. And we could think of the non-promotable work as just being the residual of that. It's if you didn't get the promotable task, then you just got stuck with the non-promotable work. So what I'm going to talk to you about today is very specifically looking at the opposite end of the spectrum. Is the non-promotable work, should we just think of it as being the residual or is there something specific in the way that we allocate that work? So, what we want to figure out, so if you think about how is a non-promotable task allocated, it's typically that you are asking for a volunteer to do it. You know, suppose that there's a client that doesn't bring in a lot of revenue, nobody really wants to do it. You meet at a meeting, the manager comes in and says, who wants to take the manager that's not a very promote, who wants to take the case that's not very promotable? And someone has to raise their hand and say, sure, I will take the case that is not very promotable. So oftentimes, when we're looking for people to take the non-promotable work, if we're looking for someone to serve on the undergraduate committee, if we're looking for someone to serve on faculty senate, what we're saying is we need a volunteer who's willing to step up. So um, that's the, the question that we wanted to look at. And this is uh, joint work uh, with Linda Babcock at Carnegie Mellon, uh, Maria Ricalde at the University of Melbourne, and Laurie Weingard also at Carnegie Mellon. And um, the work is summarized in our paper in the American Economic Review and sort of for an easier to read um, piece, uh, we just uh, published a paper in Harvard Business Review last year that summarizes the work that we've done. 
But to sort of start from the get-go, when the issue with looking at regular field data is I don't know what causes women to spend more time on committees than men. So the benefit of studying this more carefully is that I can get greater insights into what caused the differential assignment. So the first thing we did was that we got data from a large public university where they had specifically looked at people who were willing to serve on faculty senate. So we saw before in our survey that faculty are saying that serving on faculty senate is not a promotable task. And indeed, everyone is being asked to serve on faculty senate because it produces very important work. It's the supervising organization that makes sure that everything within the university happens the way it's supposed to happen. But they meet very frequently. Uh, it's a big time commitment. And at this large public university, they sent out requests to about 3,300 faculty members saying, would you be willing to serve on a faculty senate committee? Now, we saw before that people characterized this as being a non-promotable task. And you will not be surprised that the response to this email um, was not a bunch of people saying, yes, please put me on faculty senate. Uh, I'm sure as faculty members or... Uh, for those who are faculty members, um, this is not something you jump at. We have less than 4% of faculty members writing back and saying, yes, please sign me up for faculty senate. That is what I want to do in my spare time. The striking thing, however, is that we get a very large gender difference. We only get 2.6% of the male faculty writing back that they will do it, whereas the number of female faculty who write back and say that they will do it is 7%, so three times larger than what we see from males. Now, you could imagine, well, the reason why women are saying that they will serve is because they know there will be an election. The chance of a female actually being elected for faculty senate is lower. But then we can go the subsequent year and say, okay, we saw women volunteer more, but do they actually serve more? So if we look at the representation of female faculty, if men and women are equally represented, we should see that same share of female faculty serving on faculty senate. So what we see in terms of the women's share of faculty, uh, as it is in most U.S. universities, about 25% of the faculty are female overall. If women are not overrepresented on faculty senate, we should see 25% of the representatives on faculty senate being female. What we see instead is that 38% of the members on faculty senate are female. And what's most disturbing is if you look at assistant professors, who are the ones who should be most concerned about taking on additional service work, we have 38% of the assistant professors being female, but 60% of the assistant professors on faculty senate being female. So um, we clearly see differential distributions. But as it is with most of these data, we don't know why it is that women are volunteering. It could be that they just care more about faculty senate. It could be that this is their preferred activity in the evening when they are done doing their research. Um, so one of the things that we wanted to do was to take it into our laboratory where we don't have to be concerned about women signing up just because they enjoy faculty senate work. So uh, the environment we wanted <clears throat> to mirror is an environment that I've been in many times, which is promotion and tenure committees at the University of Pittsburgh. 
The way a promotion and tenure committee works at the university is that the dean comes in, and then there's a group of faculty members, and the dean starts every meeting by asking the very intriguing question of who wants to chair the committee. Now, that sounds like a very nice task, except chairing the committee just means that you get to write the report afterwards. So not surprisingly, the reason why these chairs in the picture have wheels on them is so that people very quickly, when the question gets asked, can push back <laughs> and announce a very surprising fact that they're busy. And what we wanted to know was who is going to be the one saying, sure, I will chair the committee and write the report that will have no influence whatsoever on the outcome. So that's, a, that's the environment we want to mirror. Um, and we set it up so we could run it in our experimental lab. The way we did it was we said, imagine that there are three people in this group that meets the dean. And they have two minutes to make a decision. They all have a red button in front of them. Clicking the red button is equivalent to raising your hand and saying, sure, I will write the report. If nobody clicks the button, everybody just gets a dollar. But if you click the button, you get $1.25, and the two other people get $2. So the dean is going to be happier. Everybody knows that you cannot leave the meeting without having found a volunteer, because then the dean will be unhappy. Everyone gets a dollar. But if you click, you get $1.25. So you're better off clicking if no one else is clicking. And you generate $2 for each of the two other people. So clearly, someone should just volunteer. It's just you would much rather have it be someone else. And the way we do it is that people are randomly paired into groups of three. They don't see who they're with. They just know that it's other people in the room. And then they play this 10 times with new pairs in every single round. Okay, so just to summarize the payoffs, there are three people in the group. We call them green players because they can click the button. If nobody raises the hand or if nobody clicks the button, each gets a dollar. If you raise your hand, you get a dollar twenty-five. The two other people get two dollars. But if someone else clicks the button before the end of the two minutes, you get two dollars and they get a dollar twenty-five. So you would much rather have someone else do it. And in any case, you would prefer if if someone did it. So there are obviously lots of different equilibria. There could be one where one particular person does it, there could be one where two people randomized between the two of them, or there could be one where all three of them randomized with the same probability. So the very exciting um, screenshot that they see um, is this one. Not, not quite as exciting as sitting in a meeting, um, but they all have a red button in front of them that they can click. And uh, as time is going by, uh, time is counting down, and they can see that they're getting closer and closer and closer to time zero, where everybody's getting a dollar. Okay. But the first question, of course, is do people click at all? Like we're saying it's in their interest to click. I've never met a promotion and tenure meeting where we did not find a volunteer, but does the same thing happen when I do this with undergraduates at the University of Pittsburgh? It turns out, yes, they understand that it's a good idea to click the button. So 80% of the time, Somebody in the group will click the button before the end of the two minutes. Now, as we mentioned before, the, the interest here is figuring out who is the one who clicks the button. Is it more likely to be a female than a male? 
And if we look at that, we see that pretty much from the very beginning of this session, the likelihood that a woman clicks a button is about 33%. Okay, and it stays that way. It's not as if she gets to the end and stops clicking. They pretty much stay around 33%. What about the men? This is over the 10 rounds. The men from the very beginning are less likely to click the button than the women. And it's not as if they get to the end and say, oh, I wonder what would happen if I tried to click the button. They wait all the way through. It's not as if they jump in at any particular point in time and say, maybe it is my turn to try to click the button. So if we look at the overall number of times that women click the button relative to the men, you will not be surprised to see very different distributions. So as you can see, the women are far more likely to click the button than the men. There's about 50% of men who never click the button or only click it once. Whereas there are women who are clicking it nine times, eight times, seven times, six times, five times out of the 10. So the distributions in terms of volunteering for this task is such that women volunteer more than what you would characterize equal to or more than what you would characterize as being fair. So remember, you're doing it 10 times. There are three people in the group. If it's fair, we should end up seeing women volunteering around three times. They're doing three or more, whereas 65% of the men volunteer between zero to two times. Okay, so there are very large differences in how often they volunteer. Now, once again, we're sort of stuck at saying, okay, why does this happen? Is it just because women have different preferences than men? Is it because women get more nervous as we get closer to the end of time? As we get closer to this end of two minutes, do they sort of chicken out and press the button? Or is it because that women are just more altruistic? Do they care more about the overall welfare of the group? Are women just in general more agreeable? Is that why they jump in? Or could it be instead, instead of this argument that it's coming for preferences, could it be instead that I come into this room, I see that it's a mixed gender session, it's usually 50-50 male and female. I look around the room and I'm trying to figure out what kind of equilibrium I'm going to play. And I realize the women are present. Now, as a male, if I expect women are more likely to click the button, that should cause me to play a different equilibrium than if the women had not been there. Similarly, for the women, if they come in and they see the men there, and they expect them to potentially be less likely to click because they themselves are in the room, they should be more likely to click the button. Okay, so there are two possible explanations, either that women simply have different preferences than men, or that there are different beliefs that cause women to, for us to reach an equilibrium where women are more likely to click. Now, how can we check that? Well, one way of checking that is to say, imagine if we had a session just with women. The women showed up for the lab. There are only women in the room. Now, if the difference is coming from women having different preferences, we should see these altruistic, other-regarding women click the button a lot more than what we had we would see in an all-male session where the women just aren't present. Okay, so the way to check for these differences in beliefs is just to say, let's run the exact same study 
but only have women show up. Or let's run the same study and only have men show up. So that's exactly what we did. So instead of having the mixed sex sessions that we did before, we now run sessions with only men or sessions with only females. Okay. So, of course, the question is, how do these groups do relative to our mixed sex sessions? So before we had about 80% of people, 80% of groups being successful in investing. If women are driven by their altruistic other regarding behavior, we should see them be more successful because they're no longer with the men. So let's look at the, at the females and see if they actually manage to get a higher overall corporation rate. It turns out that the single females are no different from the mixed groups. They don't do any better. They invest at exactly the same rate as they did before. What about the men? If it's because men are less altruistic, then we should see these all-male sessions failing to cooperate at the same rate. But what happens instead is that single men are exactly like single women, and the overall investment rate is exactly the way it was in the mixed sex <laughs> session. So it's not that the men don't know how to click the button, it's just they only do it when the women aren't present. Okay, so it's, it's kind of like the men going off on a hiking trip, they still know how to cook food. Um, so, so it's not coming for preferences. It's not because the women just happen to be more altruistic. It's, it looks like it's coming from a common belief that women are more likely to click the button. And then you get this self-enforcing equilibrium where women are believed to click the button and therefore click the button. Okay. So if I look at the gender gap I had before, not surprisingly, in the single sex session, there is no difference. And indeed, that is completely consistent with this coming from beliefs. Now, another way to see why not it's coming from beliefs is to make a, another small uh, change to the design that we had. So what we could say instead is, what? imagine if there was a manager, let's call the manager the red player. The manager can't click the button on his or her own. The manager just sees the group of people and, but gets to send a message to one of them saying, hey, can you please click the button? And the other people in the group get to see that a particular player was asked to click the button. Now, if this is coming from beliefs, we should end up seeing women being more likely to be asked than men. Okay? And if it's really coming from beliefs, we should expect it to be a commonly held belief so that both men and women ask women to do it more. And we should expect women, despite the fact that they're asked more, to say yes more. Right? Otherwise, we haven't confirmed the belief. So let's run a session where we introduce a fourth player, the red player. And the red player is going to get $2 if they can get someone in the group to click. It doesn't matter who it is. They just need to get someone in the group to click. And the way they can get them to click is to send a message saying, hey, can you please click? So that, that's the way that we uh, do uh, our next uh, ask treatment, where we specifically say, we have this fourth player who can ask someone else. So the incentives are exactly what they were before. We still have the three people in the group, but we've added this fourth player who is now incentivized to ask the right person to invest. Okay, so uh, the way it works is that you see pictures of the three people in your group, you're a manager, and you get to select who are you going to ask to click the button. And if you ask someone, 
that person will be told the red players asked you to invest and the two other people in your group will get to see that you were asked to click. And then we play it for two minutes again. So obviously, if you are asked, you become the focal player um, in the environment. So let's imagine, obviously, we have lots of different pictures. These are just, uh, you know, these are actually graduate students because we're not allowed to show the undergraduates. Um, but imagine that we have a group where there are two men and one woman. We randomized the orders of pictures so that there's nothing focal about being on the left or the right or the middle. Everybody has different orders. And what we see is that when we have one woman and two men, the women are asked 40% of the time and the men are asked 30% of the time. So the woman is asked more on average. Now you could say, well, that's because there's one woman. The woman is the focal player. She's the only one who's not a man. Therefore, she gets more requests. Well, one way of testing that is just to say, well, let's replace one of the men. If I replace one of the men with a woman, now I have two women in the group, now the man becomes the not a woman. So he becomes the focal player. Then I should expect, if it's just about being the one who's not like the others, I should expect men, rather than being asked 30% of the time, to be asked 40% of the time. Okay, so I can look at that. I can replace one picture with a female and say, what happens in those groups when I have two women and one man? What happens in those groups? is that women are still asked 40% of the time and the men are asked even less. Okay, so it is perfectly consistent with this commonly held belief that women are more likely to say yes. Now, of course, as you can imagine, if you need to ask someone a favor, you look at them, you try to figure out if it's someone who's likely to help you. So there's a lot of heterogeneity. The differences are coming from the systematic finding that despite the heterogeneity, so we have men who are asked one time, two times, but we have women who are asked 16 times, 15 times, 14 times, over and over. The entire distribution of requests to go to women, for any individual woman, she's more likely to be asked than a man is. Now, of course, we could say, well, who's the, who are doing this asking? Is it just the men who are asking the women? Is there some dynamic in who you're going to ask? Well, so if we say, who is asking the women more? We find, so overall, women are asked about 40%, men are asked 27% uh, of the time. But if I look by whether or not you're male or female asking, it does not matter. Both men and women ask women more. Okay? There's no gender difference in who you are asking. So if you need to find someone to do something, you're more li likely to ask the female. Now, of course, the relevant question is then, well, is it a good idea to ask these women more? If they're being asked in every single round of these 10 rounds, aren't they going to start saying no? It turns out that it's a really good idea to ask the women. Because if you ask the women, despite the fact that they're being asked a lot more than the men, they say yes 75% of the time. Whereas you ask a man, even though he hasn't been asked very much, he only says yes half the time. So it's perfectly consistent with this uh, driving beliefs. Okay, so what we're finding is both that women are more likely to volunteer, they're more likely to be asked to volunteer, and when they're asked to volunteer, they're more likely to accept that request. Okay. And pretty much all of our evidence suggests that this is consistent with it coming from beliefs. Okay, So both the fact that we see a differential response in the mixed versus the single-sex setting suggests that there's a commonly held belief that women are more likely to do this. And when you take the men out, 
the women can scale back the number of times that they volunteer, okay? It's also consistent with the more frequent request of women and the fact that they say yes. And we've sort of, we've done additional studies. We've also asked third parties to just look at what happens in these groups and try to predict who's going to be the one who's going to invest. Lo and behold, they predict that the women are the one who are going to invest. It could, as an alternative, unlikely explanation, it could be that we all are more altruistic towards men. Uh, we've also checked that hypothesis. That is not uh, what is driving the, the difference. So the, the question that's sort of coming out of this is, what can we do about it? Right? So in contrast to if you look at the whole lean-in recommendation or women not negotiating, not competing, the standard recommendation there has been that we need to fix the women. Uh, we need to get the women to negotiate harder, compete more. Um, you know, in some sense, we could ask ourselves, is it really the right recommendation for our coming leaders to tell them to be overly competitive and overly confident? Um, but that is the way that we've been going on the promotable task. If we look at the non-promotable task, what are the things that we want them to do? Well, it's certainly not to fix the women. Why don't we want to fix the women? Because we need to get these tasks done. It is not optimal for an organization to have a bunch of people just going around and saying, no, thank you. So the solution is not to teach the women to say no. But there are really simple ways that we can fix this. Right? So one of the ways that we can fix it is right now, we tend to rely on volunteering because we assume that the people who are going to raise their hands are those who have the lowest opportunity cost of time. But if women trigger faster to say yes, then that is not who we're going to end up selecting. So there's a much more efficient way of doing this, at least until we figure out what the underlying skill set is. And this is just to do random assignment. There's no reason to ask for a volunteer. If you think there's a risk that you end up falsely assigning the task, you should just randomly assign it. You should just take turns. There's no reason when I go into the promotion and tenure committee that we ask for a volunteer, everybody's busy. We should just put the names in a hat, draw one, or take turns so that we keep track of who was it who did it the last time. Um, so I think there are very simple institutional changes that can help. I think another important fact is given that beliefs seem to play a very large role, there are ways to modify those beliefs. For starters, just being aware that we have these differential allocations. We're working with uh, corporations now that systematically show different allocations between men and women, but there are different allocations that the corporations themselves were not aware of. It's not something that they paid attention to because no one was paying attention to the non-promotable work. So simple awareness and documentation, I think, can go a long way. One of the things that they're realizing when they're bringing up, you know, the MBAs, of course, are, is an interesting group of people because we have pretty much 50% male and female graduating. They all come in with similar credentials. They all get hired in the same firms. And a few years out, the men move ahead and the women stay behind. But what they haven't paid attention to is that when women are coming up for promotion, what they have in their portfolio is a bunch of non-revenue generating work. You can't get promoted if you only have non-revenue generating work. So it's also up to the organization to start mentoring and saying, you know, wait a minute, what do you have in your portfolio when you're growing up? How do we make sure that you have a revenue generating client so that you can show how good you are at it? 
how can we mentor people to say, this not very revenue generating client is going to be allocated and I know you want to be a good worker, but don't raise your hand. We've talked to companies where they've started coaching women to when they get to that uncomfortable silence where nobody is willing to raise their hand to just mimic the behavior of the men around the table, push back from your chair, put on your jacket, check your phone, fiddle with your bag, so that you don't get to that uncomfortable stage where you feel like now I'm ready to take on one for the team because you're going to be taking one on for the team over and over again. So clearly coaching people on how to take the right task and wait for others to take the one that is not right for them. <clears throat> I think it's also really important to help people be aware of what their implicit no's are. So if you say yes to one task, it means that something else is going to pass you by or you're not going to do as good a job on that task. So um, I think mentoring um, certainly uh, is, is one of the ways we need to start thinking about this. Um, lots of people and institutions also suggest, well, if non-promotable work is so important, can't we make it promotable? Can't we give people promotions based on the non-promotable work that they did? Can't we, in our organizations or institutions, when people do undergraduate curriculum review, tell them you will get promoted because you did that? And indeed, there are institutions, very famous ones, where you get points for non-promotable work. Harvard Kennedy School is one of them. If you do non-promotable work, whenever you teach an additional class, whenever you serve on a committee, you get points. And, and people are very aware of the points. When women uh, are assigned an extra task, they know they should negotiate. So they might be told you get five points and they say, that's not fair. I want more points. They reluctantly get more points. The women have a lot of points. They keep collecting points. Problem is the points have no value. So you can negotiate as much as you want, but ultimately what's going to get you promoted is whether or not you have promotable points. The things that will get you an outside offer is not how many non-promotable points you have at your local institution, it is how many publications and grants you've brought in. So setting up non-promotable point, if anything, is going to increase the difference because you will have people chasing after these points that doesn't get translated into anything. Now, one of the problems, especially in institutions where you have some groups being underrepresented, is that we have this notion that they should be represented on every committee. Okay, so you have 25% female faculty. Every committee should have a female on it. Now, you can't do that unless you, <laughs> without taxing women for their underrepresentation. Right? So trying to think about, is it really important to have women on every committee? Do they need to be on the committee of, for committees? Do they need to be on faculty senate? Is it important on every committee? And if it is important, can't we trade non-promotable work against other non-promotable work? If I really need women on every committee, maybe they don't have to teach so much. So rather than giving points, trading non-promotable work for other non-promotable work, um, I think is an easy way of changing the overall allocation. If people who never do any service work suddenly have to teach more, I'm pretty sure that they too can serve on committee for committees. So I, th I think there are simple uh, ways of, of changing these allocations. Um, 
If all else fails in institution changing this, because we should remember that it's in the interest for the institution to change this. Um, joining no clubs, which is how this whole project started with the women on this project being in a no club that would meet and talk about the extent to which they were overcommitted um, certainly helps. So if people hold you accountable to your yeses and nos, uh, even for an individual, it, uh, it makes things easier. So that's all I have. Thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYRWW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.